Well, it's good to see you each this morning. Our children are being dismissed right now to go with Miss um, Becca and uh, Miss Lisa, I believe. So maybe they've already blown out of the sanctuary. They did. They're already gone. And so it is um, so good to um, see you. And it's great to see, uh, great to see you back there, Caitlin. Hello there. Good to see you. I saw Adam a little while ago, but uh, I thought I did, but uh, he's gone. Okay, good to see you. Well, good morning. A little delayed response there. You're right. Good morning. (laughs) Here I am, Lord. Here's my heart. Here's my heart. Speak what is true. One of the most engaging plots in storytelling is framed in the imagined Rip Van Winkle predicament. Someone goes to sleep and wakes up in another time period or another dimension of existence. One of the most bizarre versions of that is in the play which was turned into a movie called An American Pickle. If you know that storyline, it goes like this. The main character was a Jewish immigrant who worked in a pickle factory in Brooklyn. And he had great aspirations for his life as he came to America and his family. But one day, horror of horrors, he falls into a vat of pickles. I think that that's the next slide, right? There he is. And inadvertently, he falls into the vat of pickles And the workers put the lid over the pickles. And then suddenly they shut the pickle factory down and they close it and it's abandoned for 100 years. And then some teenagers who are playing in this abandoned pickle factory are just playing around and they happen to knock the cover of the pickle vat off and up pops this guy perfectly preserved. <laughs> the rest, he, he is, he's brought out public, he's declared a modern miracle, and the remainder of the story unravels his realization of how the world is different. I decided to use this story to start my state of the church after I was flying on a plane, coming back from my mother deaf, watching this movie going, oh, this is perfect. (laughs) Running under the surface, though, of this story is the longing and the aspiration of this man for his legacy to matter. Now, why do I bring that story up? Well, as I begin to present to you my 21st report to Community Chapel, like never before, it feels like I fell into a pickle jar 20 years ago. 20 years ago when one reality existed. And now, this morning, today, sometimes I feel like I've stepped into a whole different reality than it was 20 years ago. And that's really the point. Reality. 
And the longing and the hope for a legacy that's eternal for me, for you, for us. It's now a famous quote from Max Dupree, famed leadership guru and committed Christ follower. He, he merged grace with grace, the role of the leader and the power of a servant, and he said this, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. The last is to say thank you, and in between is to be a servant. I've always desired to live up to that statement. I, I, I've repeated that to myself for so many years, really decades. I've always desired to live up to that and to that definition of what it means to be a leader. But because Jesus said the last will be first, I want to begin where I would normally end this state of the church, which is with thank you. So let's talk about the people reality, the reality of faithfulness. Why do I start there? Because let us never take for granted, let us never take for granted those around us who give so much of themselves to us and those around us who give so much of themselves to make Community Chapel a place of mission and ministry and just hearing you greet one another a place of fellowship and love. So thank you. Thank you first to my wife Kathleen and her undying faithfulness and grace. I have a front row seat to her commitment to Jesus and her love for people. Kathleen in many ways is a grounding force for me. She's a force to be reckoned with, I'll say that, and a grounding force. When I need to remember what it means to follow Jesus, I just need to take a look at her. Now along with our three adult children, and some of the things we've encountered the last three years or so, they've been some of the hardest years of our lives. But in these times, I am grateful for their love and support. And now, we've added to the clan our third grandchild, and now with Lucia and Olivia and Elwin, um, they have won their pop's heart. So they are like some of the most important people in the world to me. Um, even though they all have a whole lot more hair than I do. And we're trying to figure out where that came from. Definitely not my side. Thank you, Kathleen. It's also said that the people you walk the journey with make the journey worth walking. The pastors and the staff of Community Chapel are some of those people. Would you just with me thank God right now for the pastors and the staff of Community Chapel. Could you do that with me? <laughs> Pastors like Mary DiLoretto, Shirley Kaltenbach, Fern Woodruff, along with Mary Hardwick, can't be with us today, but leads our children's ministry. James Shetler, Beautifully led us in worship today. Connie Wu Meyer, our admin who does amazing work. Steve Russo, who tries his best to keep this building running. Paula Coleman, who helps us with financial integrity. And Heather Duchesne, who is leading with mission in our daycare like never in its history. They're all good traveling partners for me. 
And as a congregation, I think our understanding is limited in the scope of what these people accomplish and what they shoulder day by day by day. I get to see, I, I have a front row seat to all of that, but look around you. Look around you. It's not perfect. None of us would aspire or even suggest that. But what happens does not happen accidentally. Nor is it easy. And yet, they are faithful. And you know what? We cannot ask anything more of anyone else but faithfulness. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. The church board and the NCLC board are filled with people of character and integrity and faithfulness and love for God and the church and its mission and just understand this sentence. The complexity of the issues of this day that they deal with is another reality that goes mostly unnoticed. It's complex. And I'm grateful for them. So thank you for your willingness to serve God's people. If you're a, if you're a church board member or an N NCLC daycare board member, would you just quickly stand? Just quickly stand up. We just want to see you. I want the congregation to see you. Not all everyone could be here today. But these are people who give hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of their time dealing with the issues that no one else wants to deal with. Let's thank God for them today. Shall we do that? <laughs> Brian Andrew, Jason Carter, and Julie Klink will be rotating off the church board, as will Carol Fondon from the NCLC board, and you guys should have stood too. But we welcome Jamie Pittman and Sally Repose and Bob Whiffin to the church board, as well as Carol LeMay and Lisa Wilson to the daycare board. We are grateful for these leaders in our church. And then congregation, if there was a way to measure the gratitude, if like I had a massive scale that I could measure the gratitude I have for your kindness and your grace to my family and me over the last couple of years... As we mourn the loss of both my parents, I am sure that scale would break. And Kathleen and I are still cherishing the cards and the gifts and the mementos from the recognition of our 20th anniversary at Community Chapel. Words just do not do justice to the love we received and the love we felt. And we have those cards in a container in our living room, and every once in a while we dip into them. And then there are so many ways many have served God's purposes that cannot be cataloged. The fuller report, the larger annual report, attempts to do that. And when you leave here today, you can get a copy of this going out the door. Our ushers will make sure you get one. We try to catalog it. We don't get it all cataloged. But it's there. But consider with me the hours given by musicians and vocalists and technology servants and ushers and greeters and those who serve in group support ministries and sages efforts and discipleship and journey group participation and those with the children right now and the youth, that the, these adults who are laying it down for our youth and the young adults and the infant care and the prayer ministry and all the leadership that goes with that and the ministries of care through, in, and outside the church. Congregation, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for understanding that church is more than coming on a Sunday morning. Church is so much more. 
So thank you. That's the people reality. And at the end of the day, you know what? The only, there's really only one thing Jesus cares about. People. Amen? It's people. But let's talk about the transition reality, the reality of change. It has been said that it's not the change that will kill you, but the transition. Because we all adapt to change. I think my credit union is in on this because they seem to change their web portal regularly, and I think they're just trying to mess with me. They want me to understand I need to adapt and adopt change quite regularly. And I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of change. But we, we change all the time. We adapt regularly. Change is coming at us with such intensity and speed, though, that it's hard to adapt. And that includes in the life of the church. Let me share with you some changes. The fastest growing religious group in the United States is those who check none of the above when asked about religious preferences and affiliations. At this day and age in the church in the United States, 31% or less are doing what we do today and gather for religious services. So that's 70% of our neighbors are not. For our congregation, not including our online footprint, grateful for those who are tuning in online, but our on-site attendance is 40 to 50% below pre-pandemic levels. Actually, when you bring together the online presence, we're like just about the same. But I just need to say this. I'm grateful for how the online ministry ministers to people, and some of you would attest to that. But there's really no such thing as virtual church. No such thing as online church, really. It's a, it's a tool. It's a piece of grace. It's a ministry of the church. But church is a contact sport. It's a flesh-on-flesh -flesh sport. Here's another thing. It's an imperfection meets imperfection sport. Right? Let's never forget that. When you were greeting one another, you know what was happening? Contact sport called church. Right? And though we've tried to find our way back, let's not use the past as an excuse not to lean into what it ought to be. So we've had this challenge of attendance, and yet the spirit of our services has been great. The freshness of the wind of God blowing around us. And my friends, that, that is the metric that matters. Now, here's an amazing statistic. Though our on-site attendance is down, our giving is 85 to 90% of pre-pandemic levels. Isn't that amazing? The faithfulness of your giving in the midst of change has been extraordinary. The sacrificial nature of your commitment financially is a testimony to God's faithfulness to you and through you. But let me also help you understand the full reality, one that we've talked about at the finance team level. Probably somewhere around 80%, as best we can figure, of our giving is from those who are age 50 and over. So that's a question we need to wrestle with when it comes to the future. 
It's a change. And then there's an ongoing change of demand in the weight of the care and cost of our facility. It's going to be necessary for the board, church board, and the congregation in conversation and wrestling with the daycare board. I'm going to come back to the daycare in a minute to make hard decisions about the future of our facility. Even though we have paid off over $800,000 in old debt, and that's not anything to, to blink at, boy, that's pretty great. We still remain with about $875,000 worth of debt. 36% of our budget goes to the cost, the upkeep, and the repair of the facility when the typical average budget ratio in a church budget for facilities is 15%. So we have to ask, what does this mean? Remember what Max Dupree said, we, we need to state the reality. Now these realities suggest to us that there's significant changes that are occurring and have to occur. There's a pastor by the name of Mike Glenn. Pastor Glenn pastors one of the largest megachurches in Nashville, Tennessee. Massive megachurch in Nashville, Tennessee. He's retiring. And he's been writing about what's coming down the pike. And he wrote an article on what he wants the person to follow him to understand. So here are some things that he said that refer to the impacts of these changes on the mission of the church that are equally true for us. So let me just kind of walk through some of this. First of all, he talks about the fact that large churches, large facilities, will not be financially supportable. He believes the age of the megachurch is over. He's a successful megachurch pastor. He says facilities need to be integrated into the neighborhood by providing creative avenues for compassion and support and life skills and resources for all ages and group, people groups. And by the way, our daycare is an example of that integration. We've said for too many years that the daycare is, an ex, is a ministry of community chapel. That is not accurate. The daycare is community chapel. It is community chapel. It's part of who we are. It's part of our identity. And what the Holy Spirit is doing in the daycare, under the leadership of Heather DeShane and Margaret Wandria, our, our daycare president, and that staff and that board, is absolutely refreshing. And we thank God for that. But that's an example of integrating into the neighborhood with some compassion and support and those things. But what other ways can this be? Glenn says, the ministry now comes before the message. When people see the church loving the community, they will want to know what motivates that love. Do people see me loving the community? It's not like, what program are we going to do to love the community, but how are you, how am I loving the community? To raise the question where people say, why do they do that? Secondly, everyone in the congregation will have some kind of role in the church's ministry. And I'll come back to that. But he quotes Ephesians 4. He says, So Christ himself gave the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And as he refers to, it no longer, really never was, simply sustainable for professional staff. He goes on, he talks about the fact that giving patterns will change. Every institution is undergoing a crisis of trust. Everyone's suspicious of the church's motives. Can you blame them? 
at some measure, if we can just be honest. Sometimes the church has not behaved well in recent years. And we need to establish, reestablish credibility in our world. But he goes on. Trust has to be earned every day. When it is, financial support will flow to whatever ministry is personally impacting the person or family. And then he talks about something that we see played out every day, almost every day, in what's happening around here. Almost every day, in some form or fashion. He says this, trauma is the new reality. I think we need to be really careful that we park our judgment and we listen to those who are in pain. Instead of giving them glib answers on how to fix things, we need to just listen. Trauma is the new reality. This means that when we're dealing with people, the church isn't dealing with a clean slate. There's a lifetime of pain to deal with before any healing and growth can begin. And that includes many of us who are already in the church. Right? The church needs to bring healing grace to the trauma-filled world. And he says all of that to remind us of one last thing. This means that the gospel is needed now more than ever. Amen? Never before, hear this, never before in our existence in our community, never before is our existence in our community more important, more essential. Recently, one of the vendors that we work with every day, pretty regularly, showed up performing their normal workday task. Well, when Pastor Mary greeted them, they began to share a story of loss and pain and even trauma. He later unfolded to me as well his story. Now, why would a man walk into a building where he's not an attender, but he just walks in, and he unloads decades of trauma? Well, this man made a determination that because of the ongoing kindness and welcome he had received performing his regular job, he determined that church was a place he could find a listening ear and a compassionate heart. Hear it again. Never before is our existence in our community more essential. But it also means it's going to change. So let's talk about the mission reality. The reality of shared mission. I hope that when you get this book, you will open it up, and Connie's done a great job of creating a beautiful table of contents for you. And you can walk down through it, and what you'll see is all kinds of things, but one of the things you'll see is you'll get to our statements of ministry. And we would invite you to look at those, read those. But the truth is, our mission is pretty simple. Our mission statement's intentionally pretty simple. Sharing God's hope wherever we find ourselves. Sharing God's hope wherever we find ourselves. Sharing God's hope wherever we find ourselves. Could you say that with me? Sharing God's hope wherever we find ourselves.
And you see, when you read that, when you think about that, when you really think about it, you need to recognize it's not facility-centric in its focus. It's also not pastor-centric or professional staff-focused. But rather, it's a recognition of the church and its mission as twofold. In the famous words of, of William Temple, the famed Archbishop of Canterbury, he said, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. What a statement, right? So that means the church are those who come, hear that now, it's those who come with recognition, not to the church to say, what are you going to do for me? But those who've come to faith in Christ who realize that because of all that Jesus has done for them, we now exchange our life for his kingdom purposes. And that we seek to give ourselves away to the world as witnesses to the world. We gather, which is so critical, to be nurtured and nourished and, and then sent into the world where we spend 99% of our time. But it recognizes that. The second sermon series I preached when I arrived, I arrived here in November 2002, I preached an Advent series, and then I preached for seven weeks on the Great Commission and began talking about this idea of the church existing for the world to bring God's shalom, God's flourishing to the world. That's the first part of that statement, sharing God's hope wherever we find ourselves. You have a much greater footprint of impact than I do. Much greater. Multiply by all those you who are here. Think about the hundreds, if not thousands. It also recognizes we are all ministers of the gospel. Come back to that. I mentioned that earlier. We are all purveyors of the hope of Jesus. We all have a special ordination. Historically, this has been referred to as the priesthood of all believers, which in some measure declares that we are all ministers. Pentecost Sunday, I'm going to preach a message, and one of the things we're going to do is we're going to have something available for you, which is going to be a list of ways that you could serve. And we're just going to say, where are you going to serve? In the power of the Spirit. Where are you going to do it? I already have one person I know who's all signed up and ready to go. He inspires me. Put him up there. There he is. That's Jonas with his guitar. Jonas walked in this morning with his guitar, and he had it, and I said, beautiful, finally a guitar I can play. <laughs> right? And I took it off his head, and I tried to put it around mine, and I pressed the button, and he went, no, no. <laughs> I gave it back to him. But you know what? I want you to see something here. Here's this little boy. How old is Jonas now? He's two and a half, three years old, right? In his head, he's a worship leader. In his head, he's already giving back to the kingdom. He's already imagining it. He's too nasty. He already knows that the pastor would stink at it, so he takes the guitar. He already knows. Do you already imagine it? If a two-and-a-half-year-old can imagine it, how can I imagine it? Can you imagine it? Isn't it beautiful? That's what it means to be part of the priesthood of believers in some ways. Now, with some of these thoughts in mind, 
we have continued to find anyone who is willing to be a partner in this mission outside the church. Last fall, we focused on the desire for God. God has to, for all people to flourish. Bringing his hope means being an agent of a shalom. And so I just want to list some of our partners. Some are listed in your book, some are not. Lloyd Curtis in the Southern New Hampshire Rescue Mission, what they're doing with their Hope House for Women and what they do with the men is amazing. They could really use some help. If you would like to be part of that, put it on a, put on a, put it on a connection card and we'll connect you to him. They need some help in their Hope House with the women. Cynthia Day Family Center. That's been going on for how many years? Eight years. Walking in where women are in recovery. Many of those women have crossed through here. Bet crossed through here as a result of that. And we had the privilege of loving her and her loving us. And this was her home. Jesus was real for her here. The Buckingham Place. Where's Richard? He's back there. Hey, brother. You know, we're, we're, it's a transitional housing place for veterans and their families. We've developed a new partnership there. NeighborWorks. In our city, we're trying to work on a partnership there. Penichuk Middle School, you are feeding children some days when they don't have anything. And what we do is we just, as, and that's part of what Good Sam goes to, by the way, we try to provide for them snacks for kids who don't have anything to eat in the middle of the day so that they can, you can't learn on an empty stomach. So we're just trying to figure out how to do that. Route One Ministries where they're walking into the heart of Boston dealing with human trafficking. Veterans Count, new partner, June 3rd. We're going to have 200 to 250 cyclists here. It's plastered all over the internet at Community Chapel. Why? Because this is to support veterans in crisis. Some with PTSD, some with housing issues, some with food issues. It's something that we're just trying to partner to bring God shalom. We try to partner with Edward and Emily Brake for UNH crew. They'll be here this summer for us to talk about that. We're partnering with Becca Skane, UNH InterVarsity, as she's trying, that's part of where your missions money goes to. And then there's people like Brandon Sipes. We've developed a relationship with him and Nazarene Compassion Ministries that has been powerfully growing. There's Nazarene World Missions that you support through your giving that helps Bring the gospel around the world. There's Eastern Nazarene College, who we, are gonna, we have graduates. Some of you are graduates of Eastern Nazarene College. We're trying to partner with them to help kids have a Christian higher education. The New England District, yesterday we were at a, an event that focused on the next generation. We were there all day just talking about people like Lizzie DeRussia, who was with us, and our other students, and talking about the difference they make. So those are just some of the partners and Good Sam, that's an extension of a partnership whereby we help people from all walks of life, walking through all kinds of things. You do that, and much of those things we do to help people is confidential. But you're doing it. You're making a difference there. So how do we move forward on mission in a changing world? How do we do that? In January, um, the church board, the staff members, and other leaders met for what we call the discernment day. And we're still trying to figure out some things from that day. But we just, we're trying to seek, and seek to imagine what it means for us to minister to a changing world. There was a great deal of conversation around the nature of this world. And an effort at listening to what God might be inviting us into. We had many 
pauses of silence and just trying to listen. When we were done, everyone agreed that there was a question that seemed to be kind of bubbling up in our conversations, maybe saying to us something about what God wants for us for our preferred future. And the question is this, and it's still being worked out, but it's a good question. Born out of the privilege we have been given, and we have been given great privilege with God's grace. Amen? We are recipients of the privilege of the grace of God. Born out of the privilege we have been given and the mission we have, how do we build relationships and create space that is welcoming for the healing of the world as it is with the gospel as it is? How do we do that? We need to wrestle with that. We went on to say, how do we change our mindset and approach as we move forward? So with that in mind, let me just share with you three things that are things we are doing, we're trying to do, and again, these are all initial. First of all, we are continuing the pursuit of a next-gen youth pastor who will focus on the current generation and the generation to come. Yesterday, we heard these statistics. 70% of those who are under the age of 18 and younger describe anxiety and depression as a major problem. Suicide is the second cause of death among teenagers. 50% of teenagers live in poverty. We are currently in conversation with a candidate to be our next-gen youth pastor. More information on that will come as we're able to unfold that information. But this is not so that a person will come and do the work for the church and families that is ours to do. In fact, That person needs the church and the families, whoever they're going to be, like never before. This is to seek to help and equip us in serving and ministering to some of the most trauma and anxiety-riddled generations in our history. And it's easy for me to try to compare my generation to this generation. It's not an apples-for-apples comparison. Because, you see, this generation, as we heard yesterday, is so true It's like a 24-7 feed of political rhetoric, negativity, violence, judgment, nonstop, nonstop. They walk through a place I never walked. So I need to, as I heard yesterday, and the Holy Spirit said it to me, I need to pull back my judgment and open up my ears. So currently, we're in conversations with a candidate about this. Secondly, before my mother's death, I asked a group of trained counselors and therapists in our congregation, we have a few of them, I asked for them to meet and consider how we can be part of God's presence in a world that is so impacted by trauma. Now, that's been delayed because of the events of her death and things happening, and we're going to actually be meeting this week. But how can we imagine ways in which we can leverage what resources we have and shift our focus outwardly to a world riddled with anxiety, grief, and pain from the trauma that sin has inflicted on souls? When a pilot offers their manifest for a flight, they write this, they refer to the total number on board as the passengers, they refer to them as SOBs. 
Hear that. There are 200 SOBs on board, they may say. It's not what you think. It refers to souls on board. Whenever there's a plane tragedy and they're trying to account for the people, that's the language they use. They say we have, we've accounted for these many souls on board. We've lost these many souls. How many souls on board or in the journey of life that we share that are wounded by the trauma of sin and suffering and pain in their lives, and what is our role in walking this journey with them? That's the second thing we're going to try to do is understand what it means, help some of our mental health professionals help us understand what it means to walk with those in trauma. And then thirdly, in our budgeting process, the church board approved another opportunity for partnership. But the difference is this. The partners aren't somewhere out there in the community. They're sitting in the sanctuary today. They're watching online today. You're the partners for this one. Using funds from our savings, we plan to launch what we're calling the Mustard Seed Fund. It's in process, working it out. I am sure you're familiar with the parable of a mustard seed. When Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Well, the hope and the goals of this fund are the following. Number one, encourage attendees of Community Chapel to move outside these four walls to bring God's hope wherever they find themselves. Secondly, for individuals and small groups to envision and implement acts of compassion, projects of hope, and efforts in living out the gospel, bringing God's shalom, his flourishing to our world. Thirdly, proposals will include primary focus, cost, and plans for implementation. They'll be reviewed by the Mustard Seed team, and if approved, a grant from that fund of up to $500 will be offered to help fund that local project. And lastly, this must reflect our mission and be consistent with our life and faith as a body of Christ followers. What does that mean? Simple. It means that you have creative vision. That we cannot limit vision to one person or a group of persons. It may involve leveraging our space for a group or event. It may be something like providing emergency food to homeless people, like some people in our congregation were doing. It may be sponsoring a meal for refugees. We did that once before. What if another group said, we want to sponsor a meal for refugees and we want to apply for that. And we took those funds and we got what we needed for that. Or maybe it's a, it's a group that wants to get some curriculum that deals with abuse. And we help them get that curriculum. And then we create either space here or maybe they want to meet off-site because it's more anonymous. Maybe they say, we need that $500 to maybe initially rent a space. Or something. The limitation of this is your creativity. 
Now, we're not going to do every single thing, but I'd like you to start imagining. Imagining what you would do with $500 to change the world, to bring hope. Rather than sitting back and waiting for a person or a small group of persons to plan the great big vision, great big visions planned, go into all the world and make disciples, sharing God's hope wherever we find ourselves. But what does that look like for us to take that seriously? And that's what's behind that. It may involve leveraging our space, but it's fundamentally to be focused on planting a mustard seed of God's shalom in the world. We've set aside $15,000 from our savings to fund this in hopes that individuals will become vision leaders in fulfilling the mission of Community Chapel. These are some directions we hope to travel in, ways in which we can emerge the re- ways in which we can emerge the realities of this day as the people of God on mission with God, fulfilling the purposes of God. But as I said, these are initial. They're imperfect. They're efforts at trying to move forward into this world for the glory of God. I love what Len Sweet said. Every once in a while I love reading this quote. It really helps me. He says, Lord, do not let me or the church I love fall into anecdotage where the mind dwells nostalgically and incessantly on the grandeur of the past and stops dreaming about the possible glories of the future. You know, the good old days, there were some good to the good old days. They probably weren't as good as we think they were. And we need to learn from the good old days. But the world doesn't need the good old days. The world needs you. They need me. They need you. They need us. So let's refuse to fall into this place of nostalgically and incessantly focusing on the past and stop dreaming about what's possible. That's the mission reality. Very fluid, actually. Lastly, there's the unchanging reality, and that's the reality of Jesus. And as I'm sharing this part, I'm going to ask our worship team to start making their way up here. Because the realities of the world today are downright scary. At least they are for me. The unpredictability of the downward pressures of finances, attendance decline, institutional distrust, political discord that has stained the church, and the list goes on. And it can cause us to wonder about the future. But then we find these words from Jesus. I will build my church and the gates of hell won't overpower it. Amen? good news. And we must remember, it says this in Ephesians, he's using us all, irrespective of how we got here, in what he is building. He used the apostles and the prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. The recent years we have watched as what was comfortable and predictable and familiar and preferable regarding church has been stripped away, and that is not all bad, because much has been exposed that reflects unpleasant realities around church, our faith in politics above prayer, our fear of those who are different from us in race or socioeconomic status or lifestyle or nationality or political party or ethnicity, that clouds our ability to see God's vision of image-bearing. 
Our pursuit of comfort and preference and entitlement and performance in church life that blunts the call to sacrifice and servanthood. But, but, we have before us an opportunity in the reality of the culture's rejection of the caricatures of church and faith and followers of Jesus. We have characters. We have the opportunity to reveal the real thing. I prepared a sermon on February 19th that I never preached. It was the day before my mother died. And my dear, dear friend and brother, Russ Long, came. You should go back to that sermon, February 19th, and listen again to Russ. It's still impacting people. Powerful sermon. But in that message I prepared that I never preached, the words of this chorus struck my heart. And they strike my heart even now. They, they point to the unchanging reality that gives me hope for the church, for our church. Matt Redman writes, When the music fades and all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And here's the line. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. Yes, it is all about Jesus. So let us make it all about Jesus. And let us get a fresh dose of the church as his reality. This I offer to you as my 21st State of the Church message.